All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, LifePoint family. Welcome back. Uh, guests, my name is Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. We're grateful to have you with us. I always say this to our guests, but there's a few QR codes on the chairs in front of you. Feel free to use your smartphone as you're with us this morning. It'll take you to that resource there, lpguest.com, or you can just type that in. But we've designed that specifically for you. We know coming into church, maybe it's your first time in a while, maybe it's your first time ever. We're grateful that you're here with us. We want to make the morning as easy for you as possible. And so that, uh, that resource has the guest notes this morning, the message notes, uh, all the scriptures that'll be on the screens. That's there for you. There's also a bunch of helpful info about our church and our calendar and what's going on here, and then also a guest information card. If you wouldn't mind taking about 90 seconds to fill that out, give us some feedback in the morning. We'd love to hear from you. Um, college students, welcome back. Our uh, colleges around and universities around just started up last week again for this semester, so welcome back to you guys. And not just college students, but anyone from 18 to 25. Just a reminder to you guys, next week or this Coming week, I should say, uh, Friday and Saturday, the 26th and 27th, is the 18 to 25 conference. And so uh, we've got over 100 students signed up for that, 100 folks, 18 to 25, signed up for that already. So that's a record, you guys, as far as not only the number of folks, but how early you guys signed up. So well done. It's not the 24 hours before the flood. And so uh, if you are here and you haven't signed up, um, you go ahead and sign up now or email Braden, our uh, 18 to 25 pastor here, let him know that you want to be a part of that. And uh, speaking of Braden, I'm going to show you guys a photo. So Braden and Hannah had their third baby this uh, week, baby boy Nehemiah. Yeah. So <clears throat> mommy, mommy and baby are doing great. Braden didn't do anything, so he's fine. And so the little boy, uh, li I say little, nine pounds, four ounces, right? So big boy Nehemiah. So again, uh, grateful for their family and, and well done, guys. So uh, we... Um, one last thing before we move on to the, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Hebrews chapter 11. But one last thing, on the ends of your chairs, there are some of those flyers, the Life Group launch flyers. So this week we kick off, if you've been here for any length of time, you know, I think we're at 45 groups now at our campus. And so there are 45 groups launching this week. So please be prayerful for all of those Life Groups launching. And then also, if you don't have a group, uh, a big application this morning will be, hey, jump into a life group or a bridge group, family group, men's group, women's group. There's a ton of different groups. Please take a moment, look through that flyer, use the QR code and look through the calendar at all of those groups coming up. There's one, I think, every day of the week now uh, at almost every time. And so please take a look and let us help you jump into one of those groups. Um, we kicked off a series two weeks ago. We're in week three now that we're calling uh, Broken Mirrors. And we're looking at this reality that broken people reflect a perfect God. Uh, this reality that every person, regardless of where they're from or their background, ethnic background, socioeconomic background, they're made in the image of God. And when you look at that person, you're seeing someone that even in their brokenness gives you a reflection of who God is. And we talked about that within the context of the church as people who are being remade in the image of Christ, as we love one another as imperfectly as we will do that. We are still giving people a glimpse of the goodness and the perfection and the love of God. And so in this series, we've been, to kind of study that, we've been looking at some characters in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith. It lists out these Old Testament saints who in some way, shape, or form, as very imperfect as they were, uh, exercised and exhibited faith in God, trust in God, and they're celebrated for that. And so we've been looking at some of the lesser known characters in that series. And as we've done that, 
we've also just tied those and sort of highlighted our core values. And so we've done it every week. We're going to keep doing it. But these are our five core values. Hold up your hand, right? Hold it up with me. All of us. There we go. These are our five core values. So we say the thumb, right, is gospel identity, reaching priority, authentic community, spiritual intimacy, and personal ministry. And today we're looking at this uh, <laughs> middle finger, uh, authentic community, right? I should have practiced that beforehand, right? Authentic community that we are family. This reality that we are because of the Lord, because of what he's done for us, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to see that in a sort of interesting story and interesting kind of way. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Let me read this to you. This is the author of Hebrews. He's already told us what faith is about. And then he lists out a bunch of folks and he gets then to Moses. And he says, by faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, some of you may be wondering, right? Moses, that's not a lesser character. No, he's not. Uh, humanly speaking, he's probably the most significant character in the Old Testament. But we're looking not so much at Moses as we are. Verse 23 says he was hidden by his parents for three months by faith. And we're going to see the story of that. If you've got a Bible, flip back to Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. We're highlighting again this idea of authentic community. And I want to point something out. The reality is that pretty much everyone throughout the scriptures and throughout history who's ever been used by God in any capacity was not used by God in a vacuum. They were used by God in the context of community people around them who love them, support them. This is still true today. If you are used by God, you are used by in the context of community. Think about the reason you're sitting here even now. Someone probably invited you. Someone raised you in the faith. Someone prayed for you in the context of community. What we see in Moses' life is that he had many people who loved him and supported him all throughout his life and ministry. And we're going to see in our story that at his birth, before his birth, there were, there were people, not just his parents, but people who were looking out for him and even putting their life on the line for him and for others in the community before he was ever born. And so back in Exodus 1 and 2, let me give you the context here. So um, if you've read through Genesis, you know that at the end of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers, right? Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons, Joseph, is sold by his brothers into slavery, into Egypt. But through a miraculous series of circumstances, he's, he becomes one of the most important figures in Egypt. And he saves Egypt from this famine and he saves his family from this famine. And his family comes and moves into the Israelites. At that point in time, they're called the Hebrews. The whole family moves into Egypt and they stay there for hundreds of years. And they multiply and they multiply and God blesses them and they grow until finally they are not just a family anymore. They're a whole nation of people. And the Egyptians are terrified of them. Because what happens is a new king, often called Pharaoh, comes to the throne and he doesn't remember Joseph and what Joseph did for Egypt. And he's just looking out with his people going, hey, this, these Hebrews have gotten way too numerous. This foreign group of people in our midst and the Egyptians begin to fear if they side with our enemies, we're not going to be able to control them. We're not going to be able to take advantage of them. We're not going to, this is not going to go well for us. And so what they do is they start this terrible policy of enslaving them and forcing them to do extremely harsh labor. They conscript them to labor. And yet, under that pressure, they continue to multiply and grow as a people. And so you've got the king of Egypt oppressing them and the king of heaven blessing them, right? 
I worked on that rhyme all week, but nothing. All right, so it's this sign that God continues to be with his people and he has not abandoned them in the midst of the circumstances in which they're in. And so in the light of seeing that, that they continue to multiply, the king of Egypt steps it up a notch. And this is what happens. Exodus chapter one, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh enacts this policy, right, of partial infanticide and says, let's hit him right where it counts and we'll take all their sons and we'll kill them, their newborn sons. And I want to pause there and just note what has happened. Before we get to the midwife's response, note what's happened there. It's gone from, we're afraid of them, to we have a serious problem. We need to start vilifying these people in our speech and in our thought patterns to now we need to take action against them. Heinous, immoral, legal action against them. And I just, the reason I point that out, guys, historically, we've seen that same pattern play out over and over, both in the modern world and in the ancient world. It's not, it's not a new thing. This idea of prejudice taking place and vilifying, hey, they are the enemy, and, and then the rhetoric starts, and then the passions get involved, and eventually it's not a far cry from where you start to see action being taken against people, and it's justified based on, well, they're the enemy. Most, right, the most prominent example of this in our last century, right, is Nazi Germany. This is what happened. It follows the same pattern. It's, let's talk about them, the Jewish people, as a problem and then we're going to start moving towards action. Hey, you guys need to wear these stars, these badges that identify you separately. And then it was, we're going to break down and burn your shops and your businesses. And then finally, it was the Holocaust itself and the concentration camps. That was the progression. You say, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because, again, we need to be aware that beginning to vilify a certain group of people and saying, hey, they're the other, they're the enemy, that's the problem it it starts with speech and rhetoric, and then it moves towards action. That's the way sinfulness gets expressed in a society, at least in one way. And I bring that up because what I see right now, we're heading into, right, we're in an election year. I know everybody's thrilled about that, but we have to, we have to go through it as the people of God. And one of the things that I see and listen to right now that honestly concerns me is how inflammatory the rhetoric is on both sides and how it's so easy to say, they, right, the other, whoever the particular other is, they are the enemy. They are the threat. And the rhetoric gets inflamed. And usually, historically, what happens is that gets moved into, okay, now we can justify taking action against that group of people because for so long we vilified them in language. And I say that to say, guys, let's be careful as the people of God. You say, Kayla, are we, are we not supposed to call out evil and say that's a problem? Yes, we are. But we've got to main the dis we have to maintain the distinction between hating evil and hating people. Hating evil is one thing, saying, hey, that's wrong. We're going to call that out. We're going to fight for gospel justice, and we're going to fight for the kingdom of God and advancement. We're going to love people right into the kingdom. But we have to maintain the distinction between hating evil and rightfully calling that out and hating people, remembering people are not the enemy. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He's what drives that. But it's not those people made in the image of God. And vilifying people, harboring bitterness toward them in your soul, that's not going to help love them into the kingdom of God. And frankly, it does nothing good in your own soul. As we do that, if you harbor that stuff in your heart, it leads to 
usually doing the very things that you say are so heinous and hate in, in the beginning. It leads nowhere good. So let me just say, guard yourself as we go through this year, as the rhetoric is inflammatory, look inside in your heart and say, Lord, guard my heart from harboring that kind of bitterness and resentment toward people. Help me hate evil, but not hate people. Now, let's look at the midwives' response. Exodus 1, 17. But the midwives feared God, that's so important, we'll come back to that, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Their response is phenomenal. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's probably a lie, but I just love the fact, especially I imagine like some of the Egyptian women standing there, right? And they're like, you sissies are nothing compared to, right, these Hebrew women. That's what they say to Pharaoh. They're like, I don't know what to tell you, king, right? They're just vigorous women. By the time we get their babies there, right, we don't, there's nothing we can do about it. And oddly, Pharaoh doesn't do anything about that. I don't know if he's like, look, not my department, right? I'll just take your word for it. But they move on. In verse 20, it says, so God dwelt well with the midwives. Not probably because of their statement here, but because of their fearing him rather than fearing the king. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families or families of their own. Now, what happens next is this leads to Pharaoh upping it again. He sees this policy is not working, so he starts the next one. And he says, look, any Egyptian, I want all my people. You need to find, if you find a Hebrew boy, you take the boy and you throw him into the Nile, into the river. But there's this man and this woman, Moses' parents, who follow in the footsteps of the midwives, and they once again defy the king. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. That's what Hebrews eleven twenty three was referring to. By faith, they hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with uh, bitumen, bitumen and pitch. It's basically tar. I don't know why they translated it that way, right? It would have been easier just to put tar. But she tars it and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, I want you to think about that act of faith on Moses' mother's part. And it's interesting, right? She goes and she, like the midwives, she and her husband will not yield to the king. And so first by faith, they defy the king of Egypt, who's arguably the most powerful man in the, on the entire planet at that point in time. They defy him. They hide a newborn for three months, which just in and of itself is an extraordinary feat. And then they entrust him to God. When they can't do it any longer, they place him in the Nile River and entrust him to God. Now, one, one pastor and author mentioned, he said, I, I really think that she had a plan here. Most, this is the way I've always thought about it, that she just kind of floated it into the Nile River and off the river he goes, right? That's how they depicted it in The Prince of Egypt. And that film is basically a documentary. So that's the way I always thought that it worked. But this author was arguing, and I think he's probably right, that the language is she placed it in the reeds by the river, that mom had a plan. I think that's probably true, that she knew where Pharaoh's daughter would come and regularly bathe in the Nile River and she places it there. Even if that's true though, I mean, this is an extraordinary act of faith. There's no guarantee on what's going to happen here, right? Putting this baby inside of the river, hoping, right, that, okay, Pharaoh's daughter's going to come, and, and hoping, I mean, there are, there are enormous crocodiles in the Nile River. I mean, it's a terrifying place. There's no guarantee that even if Pharaoh's daughter finds him, she's going to take pity on him. 
but she's trusting God. Look, Lord, I'm placing him here and I'm trusting you. And that's exactly what happens. So Pharaoh's daughter comes down and begins bathing in the river. If you go and read on in the story, she hears this baby boy crying. She takes pity on him. Now, mom with the plan, it's great. She's got older baby sister planted right there. And baby sister just happens to show up at the moment. She's like, do you need like a wet nurse, someone to breastfeed the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter's like, you know, I do, you know? And so she's like, do you have anyone in mind? And Miriam is like, you know, I do. And so she runs back and gets mom and mom's like, you know, hey, I need to heard, heard you needed help, right? And so what's great is Pharaoh's daughter ends up paying Moses's mother to feed the baby. And so Moses gets placed back with his family on pay, on Pharaoh's dime. And so Pharaoh, in an attempt to kill Moses, ends up paying for his breastfeeding and then paying for his world-class education and adopting him into his family. It's awesome, right? The sovereignty of God working itself out in the story. And there are so many threads we could go down, but here's the question I want us to kind of wrestle with for the rest of our time. Looking at Moses' parents and looking at the Hebrew midwives, what is it that causes them and really the entire Israelite community. I mean, it's possible that some of them ratted each other out, but I would imagine there had to be a fair amount of solidarity here amongst the community to say, we're going to hide our children from the king and from the Egyptian people. What is it that causes people, in the midwives' case, who aren't even related to one another? I mean, they might be distantly related, but it's a nation at this point in time. What is it that causes them to be so committed to one another, to sacrifice, put their own lives on the line in order to protect one another, even in the face of opposition and persecution. And as I thought about this, and I, there's a point in the text in particular in verse 17. Here's, here's the big point, I think, that I want to get across and want us to explore. Our relationship with God shapes our relationships with one another. That our relationship with God, how we relate to Him, and how we see Him, will shape how we relate to and how we see and how we act toward one another. Think about it with Moses' parents. You say, well, I mean, come on, Kale. They're parents, right? They love their baby. Of course. But I don't think you can just tack up what they do to just a mother and father's love. It's more than that. They could have, and there are both modern and ancient examples of parents giving up their children because of fear or pressure or government persecution. Moses' parents could have said, look, it's just too dangerous. We have to discard this child. That was a common practice in the ancient world. We're discarding this child. We have two already. We could all die because of this. But Hebrews 11 says, no, they were people of faith. That by faith, they hid him for three months. They, these two know God. They trust God. And their trust in him shapes their actions toward their son and toward the king of Egypt. We're going to defy you, and we're going to protect him by faith. And then the Hebrew midwives, I think you see it even more. They could have so easily said, I mean, I'm sorry, Israel, fellow Israel, sorry about your babies and all, but we have to look out for our own skins. We have a direct command from the king of Egypt. He has said this to us, right, personally, and, and look, I'm sorry that it is what it is. They could have quit, they could have stepped back, or they could have just obeyed the command, and instead... Very courageously, they defy the most powerful man in the world at that moment, and they protect the lives of the most vulnerable in their community. And you say, why? Look back at Exodus 17, chapter 1, verse 17. But the midwives, and just circle those two words, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. 
but let the male children live. But the midwives feared God. Their defiance of Pharaoh, their courage, their willingness to go out and say, we will stand up against the most powerful man in the world and we will protect these children. It's not, I mean, it's not, they don't walk around just, you know, it's just the kind of people we are. <laughs> We're just courageous people, right? Selfless people. That's just who we are. No, we fear God. And this is a really, I didn't put it in the notes, but you might write it down. The fear of God has a very, very powerful ability to help expel the fear of man in your life. The fear of God has a powerful ability to help you expel, to expel out of your life and your heart the fear of people. You, you, every one of us feels it. I know you do. I know I do, right? Whether it's in the workplace, whether it's just cultural ge culture generally, whether in the classroom or at the university, whether from peer pressure, where you oftentimes are making decisions and what's loudest in your mind is all the things that people, what is this person going to think? What is this person going to think? What are my friends going to think? What's my boss going to say? What are my parents going to say? What are my kids going to think? And so small and so not quiet is the, the voice of God. And really that process needs to be reversed where when we think about what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How should I think about this? What we hear first and loudest is the voice of God. What does he say about this? What does he think about this? Because if we appropriately fear him and recognize one day I will stand before not my parents. One day I will stand before not my boss. One day I will stand before not my friends. One day I will stand before not my classmates. One day I will stand before my maker, the creator, the God of heaven, and I will give an account to him for what I've done. That has a powerful, like cold water on the face, it's got a powerful clarifying effect in your life where you say, okay, what's really important? That's what happens here for these midwives. Their view of God and their appropriate fear of him, their relationship to him shapes how they handle this moment. It's the same in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles are out preaching the gospel, and they're called in by the religious authorities, and they're put in jail. I mean, they're put in jail overnight, and then the religious authorities come to them, and they're like, stop talking about Jesus. And then they flog them. They whip them. And they're like, now get out of here. And they look at them, and they say, well, here's the deal. We have to obey God and not you. I mean, think about that. God, if, if today, right, the police came here and said, okay, all of you are put in jail just for being here. <laughs> all of us got put in prison and then fined a hefty fine and then released. How many of us are coming back next week? Like, all right, <laughs> see you on Sunday. It's the appropriate fear of God that expels the fear of man. And, and then more expansively than that, not just the fear of God expelling the fear of man, but the relationship with God, right? In the Old Testament, when it's, you know, they feared God, it's this, they know who he is and they recognize who he is and they live their life in light of that. It shapes their relationship with one another. It shapes how they act toward their community and how they love their community. And that's where, I, for me, the tie, when you say, well, what does that have to do with authentic community and us being family? I think it has everything to do with it. Because when we say, hey, we are family, what we're saying is God, through Christ, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, has made us sons and daughters, which makes us brothers and sisters to one another. And Jesus said, you are to love one another deeply from the heart. 
Jesus repeatedly all across to the gospels is telling people, love one another as brothers and sisters. But the reality is, if we're going to do that, if we're going to have right relationship to one another and love one another like this, it has to come from a right relationship with God first. It has to come from knowing who he is and knowing who we are in him. And then, and only then, do we have the ability to relate to one another rightly. All right, I want us to do do something for me. All right, I want you to turn around right now and look at the person next to you. Okay, just lock eyes right now. Everybody look. Everybody look and lock eyes with them, right, for just a second. Look at them, right? All right, now you can look back at me. Now, most of us, I know, a little awkward, right? Most of us, you were looking at someone that you know. Not all, but many of us looking at someone that your spouse or a kid or a brother, sister, or uh, someone in your family. And, and let's just be honest, we get it when you're like, okay, I'm supposed to love this person. And there's this feeling of, well, I mean, it's my wife, it's my husband, or man, we're blood, we're related, right? Of course I should sacrifice. We're blood, we should sacrifice for one another and love one another. And that makes sense to us. So here's what I want you to do now. I want you to look around. I want you to lock eyes with someone you don't know. Look around the room, find someone you don't know, and lock eyes with them for just a minute, right? Lock eyes. Stare. I know, I know it's awkward, right? All right? Now, if you're single and you've locked eyes with that other single you were hoping to lock eyes with, and that works out for you, I want credit for that, all right? Like at the wedding, I want that story told, like we locked eyes because Kale said. All right, you can look back up now. Here's the reality. Whomever you just locked eyes with, Jesus tells you to love that person. And in one sense, because they're your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Do for them what you would hope they would do for you. But in another sense, right, if, if they love Jesus and you love Jesus, and if you're here today and you don't love Jesus, that's what we're inviting you into. But if they love Jesus, if that person you locked eyes with loves Jesus and you love Jesus, you too are family. That's your brother or your sister in Christ. You are their brother or their sister in Christ. And we are called, you are called, Jesus commands us to love one another deeply from the heart because of what God has done for us. You're you're saying, right, we just said a minute ago, well, well, they're blood. Guys, we're blood, related by the blood of Christ, shed for us at the cross to forgive us and to bring us into God's family. We've been adopted one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We all have the same Father, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ called to love one another. So here's how I'd summarize that, right? I've been thinking about this a fair bit. Gospel identity results in authentic community. When you understand who you are, I'm a new creation, made, made new by Jesus. I am his, I'm God's son, daughter. That results then in authentic community with one another as we look at one another and go, man, you've been made new by Christ. The most important thing about you and me is we've been made by God and now remade by him into the image of Christ, saved by him. And that results then in right relationship to one another. I'd maybe add to that, right? I didn't put it in the notes, but you might add to it the relationship that reaching priority has with this. Last week, we talked about being on mission together. The reality is when you share a common identity, 
and you've got a common mission that results in strong bonds. Anyone who's ever been a part of a team or a club, you know this, right? Like it almost doesn't matter what the team or club is. Basketball, chess club, outdoor club, doesn't. We've got this common identity. We're the team and we've got a common mission. We're going after that. We're going, we're going to climb that mountain. We're going to win that game. We're going to play this sport. We're going to, and what happens is people, and this is the beauty of it, people who often wouldn't even spend time with each other outside of that team or that sport end up having these deep relationships with one another. We, we've got to think of it and understand it that way. Hey, what does it mean that we're family? We've been made new in the image of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family because of Jesus, and we're also in pursuit of Jesus. As we gather here, as we gather in groups, as we're out living our lives, we are in pursuit of Christ in a common mission to make disciples for the glory of God. We're doing it together. Love one another deeply from the heart. So let me give one, I'm going to give one primary application. We'll keep it pretty simple this morning. One big picture application and then broken out into just three different ways. All right, some of these you can probably guess. Here's the big, mind-boggling, stunning application. Ready for this? Love one another. <laughs> Love one another deeply. And I'm going to give you three contexts for that, right? Just bring that slide up, right? And I've worked in a life group, <laughs> on a life team, and then just in life, just in life, and let me explain what I mean by each one of those, why I bring those up, okay? When I say in a life group, we're launching all of our groups today. One, if you're not in a group, get into a group. My goal, one of my hopes for our church is that everybody who calls this church home has a smaller group of people that they're meeting with regularly who encourage them and that you encourage that we're living in biblical community with one another. So, so get into a group. We're at about 75% right now of total attendance on a Sunday morning in groups. Historically, that's been closer to 90%. I'd like to push it 100. Let's have everybody in a group. But then I'm going to take this a, a level deeper. It doesn't just, not just get into a group, but take a Philippians chapter 2 attitude into your group this term. What does Philippians chapter 2 say? Paul says, look, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Put on the mind of Christ. I was talking with one of our life group leaders this week, and he said it so well. I asked him once again, and God seems to keep doing this in my life, where I have a meeting with someone, and I'm like, that's a perfect application. For, can I use that, please? And he's like, sure. He said, man, my hope for my group this term is that all the members in our group will not come in looking at it. He said, I think sometimes there's this tendency to look at it as my group, and then everyone else is just kind of a part of it but it's my group. He said, I want it to be our group. And if I were to summarize what he was saying, it was, I, I want everyone coming in recognizing how much they matter to that group and not saying, what can I get from that group, but what can I give to that group? So if every single one of us will go into this term of life group saying not, what am I going to get out of this group, but rather, what can I give to this group? How can I serve this group? How can I love the people in this group? And listen, that will fight every tendency, every American self-centered tendency, every human self-centered tendency to say, well, what am I going to get from it? We are saying, no, I'm going to say no to that. And rather in Christ's likeness, because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. I'm going to go into my group saying, what can I give? And guys, if we will do that, I wholeheartedly believe this term will be the healthiest term 
And I wholeheartedly believe that in a counterintuitive kind of way, you'll end up getting more from that group. It will be a better experience. But because rather than going in saying, hey, what can I take? What can you offer me? You're going in saying, how can I give to and love this group of people and sacrifice for them? Secondly, I said on a life team, another one of my hopes is that everybody here in some capacity calls, right, that calls LifePoint home, that you're serving on a team, whether that's on a Sunday morning context or throughout the week. And I want to say a couple of things about this. Um, I recognize, so there are some folks here, and I've talked with you, where like you're in a season right now where you've kind of gotten beat up and, and you've come out of a difficult, maybe a little bit of woundedness there. And it's like, hey, it's okay. Take a moment. Breathe right? Breathe. Heal. Just, just be here. That is okay. Praise God. Uh, we've got some other folks, like there's some single parents in our church that you got multiple kiddos, and if you can serve, that's awesome. You're like a superhero. And then some of you are like, Kale, we're just happy to make it on a Sunday. And I'm like, man, I'm just happy that you're here. But there are others of us, okay? And, and look, if you're brand new here, well, I'm not asking you to serve yet. If you're a guest, we're, we're glad you're here. But if you're here and you call LifePoint home and you haven't yet taken a step, you're like, I'm not serving anywhere. And if you were just to be honest with yourself, you're like, Kale, there's no legitimate reason <laughs> I have not taken a step to serving on a team. I'm not mad at you and I'm not trying to guilt you, but lovingly, I want to give you a little pastoral kick in the spiritual butt, right? To just say, hey, jump onto a team. And, and I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about that person that you locked eyes with earlier some of those folks, your brothers and sisters, are serving in two and three different capacities right now. I see it every week. I see people coming in here during the week to prep the kids' resources. I see people giving their time to lead your life group. I see people coming in here and prepping for LifePoint Kids. I see people, our worship team, getting here at 6.30 a.m. or 7 a.m. in the morning to practice and make sure that they're ready. We've got 15 people who serve on our parking team. It was negative seven wind chill last Sunday, and they're out there, right, all bundled up, making sure people have a place to park. I want you to think about them. And you say, what, so I can feel guilty? No, I want you to think about them and be compelled by love for your brother or sister and say, you know what? I can help share that load rather than you serve in two or three different capacities so that we can gather here on a Sunday morning, I can take a step and I can serve and I can help. It's one tangible way you can love your brother or sister well. So there's a life team orientation, right? Um, just so happens there's a life team orientation 15 minutes from now, right? In the meeting room, okay? In the meeting room right today. If you have not signed up for that, that's, that's a 45 minute class where you learn about what does it mean to serve here and what are the ways that you can serve here. If you have kids, they can stay in LifePoint Kids. We have a double up room where kids get to hang out and play if they're here for two services. Everything's ready. Just go. Go and say, you know what? No more waiting. I'm going to take a step, and I'll do that today. And if you cannot make it there, you're like, Kale, I want to. I can't. I'm going to throw Brian's email up here, right? Brian S. LifePointOhio.com. I introduced Brian last week. He is one of our Campus Life pastors. Just joined the team, and he would, there would be, this would be a great way for him to spend the week responding to everybody, helping you take a next step to where you need to be, all right? And then the third one was this, just in life. So one thing I don't want to do, I never want to look at us and say, hey, the full application in your life of loving one another is in life group and life team. <laughs> those, are, those are two things for a couple of hours in a week. In life, 
Christianity is not a program, it's a lifestyle. And so as you follow Jesus, we're called to have an attitude like the midwives of when these opportunities come, like Moses' parents, I will sacrifice for others. Why? Because of the way Jesus sacrificed for me. And God is going to give us innumerable opportunities to love one another, to serve one another. And, and guys, it doesn't, I mean, there are big ways, yes. And there are small ways. Sometimes it's just God puts someone on your mind and you're like, I should text them and reach out to them and see how they're doing. Hey, I was thinking about you today. How are you doing? The way that we love one another, Jesus says, that's how people are going to know that we're his disciples. By the way in which we love one another. And look, like in any family, it's going to be messy. There's going to be conflict. That's going to happen. But how we handle that conflict, how we love one another, how we lean in, it will mark us as disciples of Jesus. And I know, right, sometimes in a church our size, you say, Kale, but I don't know everybody, right? I may not even know that brother or sister's name. That's okay. <laughs> in any group of people beyond about 75, you're not going to know everyone, right? I had a buddy back home. He was from a, a German Baptist background, right? If you know anything about that, came, comes off that same line as sort of the, the Amish. And just traditionally, they had really big families, five to seven kids per family. He said, Kale, at our family reunions, there are 250 people there. Right? They had to get one of those big white tents just for their family reunion. Does everybody know each other? No. Are they family? Yes. They're related by blood. You and I, related by blood, by the blood of Christ, shed for us. And I'll close by saying this. We're going to take communion here in a moment. We're going to celebrate the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ broken for us. But I'll finish with this. I always encourage us, please look at the Old Testament and see through it. The New Testament. Read these stories and look through it and see Christ. I don't know if there's any more powerful example in the Old Testament than Moses. His whole life and his story. You've got this little baby who's protected by his parents from a king who wants to murder him. And then he grows up and God uses him to lead the people out of their slavery and their bondage. You fast forward a few thousand years and you've got Jesus who's protected by his parents from a king who wants to murder him. And they flee and they consequently they go to Egypt and they come back and Jesus grows. And Moses said, someday there's going to be a prophet who comes like me and you need to listen to him. And Jesus grows up and God, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, delivers us out of our bondage, not not from physical Egypt, but what's often called spiritual Egypt, from our bondage to sin and shame and guilt. And we are set free of that, forgiven, made new, made family by the sacrifice, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And if you're here today, my hope for you, my prayer for you, if you love Jesus, is that reality settles on you in a new way that it impacts how you live, how you relate to one another. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, as we pray, I would encourage you to take a moment. Pray to the Lord. Ask for the forgiveness of your sin. We would love nothing more than to celebrate that today you joined the family of God and to welcome you in as a brother 
or a sister. Let's pray together. Father, first I ask forgiveness on my own behalf and God on behalf of all of us for the times where we have been much more like culture, much more like the sinful human heart of saying, what can I get? This is about me. God, whether in a life group or on a life team or just in life, Lord, in our attitudes towards our spouses, towards our family members, towards our coworkers, it is so much easier to make those things and those relationships about ourselves. And God, I ask forgiveness. Forgive us and help us. We have the mind of Christ. Help us to put on that attitude that says, I will consider others before myself. God, help us to love the stranger. Help us to love the outsider. Help us to love the hurting. Help us to love the broken. And God, help us to love one another. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, deeply from the heart. And may it not be something we just do with words, but in action. I want to give you a moment right now. If you're here and you're going to take communion here in a moment, just get your heart right before the Lord. Pray. Confess anything you need to confess to him. Speak to him. And then we'll take communion. folks are praying, if you're here today and you've never stepped into the family of God, I'd encourage you, pray now. Speak to the Lord. Ask forgiveness. And if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did, then trust him today. Father, we love you. We thank you and we ask now as we remember, Father, your sacrifice and what you did for us, Jesus, that you'd set our hearts right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us, we take it together. Verse 25, the Apostle Paul says this, In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in remembrance of Jesus' blood broken or shed for us and in anticipation of his return, we take it together.